we come into the presence of God, just like when we first meet someone, <clears throat> the most powerful moment is the one where we hear them speak. Hear now as God speaks from his word. Our scripture reading today is from Revelation 7. You are more than welcome to follow along in your your own Bible, or there is one offered in front of you and on the back of the pew in front of you. Revelation chapter 7. I will be reading from the NIV version. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. <clears throat> Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen! Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. <coughs> Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. We continue our 
sermon series through the book of Revelation. Let's pray. God and Father, be with us now as we study your word. Be with all of us where we are sinful, as we sit under its authority, that we might learn and believe from it. Be with me, for I am sinful as I seek to teach you. pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Who can stand before the judgments of That is actually the question that haunts this whole passage, even though you won't find it in it. One of the hard things about preaching is that you have to do these breaks. Often you break along the lines of chapters, but obviously in the original biblical text, there are no chapters, right? It's just a continuing thing. And this whole passage really lies underneath the last two verses of Revelation 6. Revelation 6 is all about God's judgment coming on the earth destruction coming, and finally the Lamb rides out to judge the world, and the people hide, and they say this. They say, to the stones, they say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand before the judgment of God? Well, this chapter, in many ways, is an answer to that. We mentioned last week, looking at chapter 6, that a lot of us struggle with the idea of God's judgment. That that is normal, but before we can dive into this text, we need to spend a little bit more time talking about that idea that God judges the world and wrestling with it. So a couple of things for us to reflect on about God's judgment. First, we should note that for most of us, our problem isn't really with God's judgment in the abstract because we're fine with it when it's applied to certain other people, right? When we think about, like, Kim Jong-un or Harvey Weinstein or that guy who just, like, sped up to get in front of us at the grocery line. Like, we are fine with the idea of God's judgment falling on those sorts of people. The problem we have is that the biblical picture of justice is much more inclusive. It's really all-inclusive, right? It says it's pictured as falling on all of human beings. We are all pictured as now, sure, right up front, that doesn't mean that all of us have done the things that Kim Jong-un or Harvey Weinstein did. Although, also, like, let's be honest, it's not like I've been given the opportunity to do those things and said no, right? Um, but, but the thing to recognize about biblical justice, maybe the simplest way to think about it is this. On the one hand, I can look back on my life and recognize that there are these moments that have deeply wounded and scarred and shaped me as a human being, right? Moments when I have moments when people have said cruel and careless things to me. Um, There's stuff that's happened that even though you grow and even though it doesn't define you, like that's still a part of me. And when we talk about sin and the brokenness of the world, what we're really talking about is the aggregate of all of those things. That I as a human being am wounded and diminished because of the way that I've been sinned against, right? And that I'm broken in different ways because of the ways that I've been sinned against. So you recognize that recognize that really that's the cause of God's justice. But then you also recognize that I, as a human being, have also done those things to other people. Like I can remember times that I have said those cruel, thoughtless things to people when I have betrayed other people. And I'm sure that there's lots of times that I've done that and I don't even remember. And the biblical idea of, um, of sin is that it's really that. People like me doing things like that in the aggregate results in this broken world and on which God's justice is coming. 
And that means that when I hear about justice, I can sort of resonate with the need for it, right? Because I can see the ways that I've been wounded and broken. But I also feel a kind of fearfulness about it. Because I recognize that I'm the sort of person that it should come upon. Who can stand, therefore, they ask, before the judgment of God? Or to come at it from another way, I think one of our struggles with justice is that we have the wrong default setting for humanity. My, like, default setting is that, you know, God should be cool with me and save me and thinks I'm great, and the judgment feels like kind of this weird thing that doesn't fit. But in the biblical story, that's, um, that's just not how that default setting should work. Like, in the Bible story, God is perfectly good, and he, as an overflow of this goodness, it, like, spills over into this beautiful, very good world that he creates show forth his glory, and we're put in charge of that world, um, it, that very good world, to show forth God's goodness and glory, and instead, we go to war with God. We rebel against God, and everything gets wrecked, right? And this very good world is now a mess, and we are, in our sin, actively waging war against God. That's the biblical idea of sin, right? It's not breaking arbitrary rules. It's that God made everything good, and we put other gods in his place. We worship ourselves instead of God, and we start this cosmic war that, as a result, everything gets wrecked. That's the kind of biblical picture of sin. And in that story, the default setting should be judgment, right? We should, in a real sense, be taken out. The whole idea of biblical justice is that God is committed, he's so committed to the goodness of his world that he's not going to abandon it, that he's going to restore it, but as part of that restoration, he has to destroy and defeat those enemies that are wrecking it, which includes us. Which is to say that, like, when you read or watch the Lord of the Rings movies, right, and it gets to the end and it's happily ever after, our instinct is not to say, but what about the orcs? Like, what about the ring wraiths? Like, they didn't get a happily ever after. We all get the sense that, right, as the enemies that are destroying the world, that it's sort of necessary for justice to come on them. And in the story of Scripture, All of which is to say that in the Bible story, judgment is not remarkable. It's what we all deserve. However, the remarkable part of the Bible's story is that judgment is not all that happens. Scripture has this incredible promise that there is hope. That we're asked at the end of Revelation 6, who can stand in the face of God's judgment? And then Revelation 7 comes and gives an really gives three realities about God that help us to stand in the face of this world and its judgment. That we are saved by the Lamb, that we're sealed by the Lamb, and that we will be healed by the Lamb. And we're just going to walk through each of those in turn. But first of all, how can we stand? Well, we are saved by the Lamb. We're saved by the work of Jesus Christ from the judgment of so pick up with me in verse 9. We're going to look at the first vision in a minute. But if you start reading in verse 9, um, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So John sees this great multitude, and this represents the church. This represents God's people. Um, and real quick, this is not the point we're going to make from this this morning, but this is the second time in three chapters that John has done this, and I don't want to skip over pointing it out twice. But one of the central things John stresses in Revelation is the, the international, multi-ethnic, 
diverse character of God's people, right? That every tribe and tongue and language and nation that he uses both in Revelation 5 and here in 7 is meant to stress for us that reality. And I think that's something we all pay lip service to, but we do need to, like, name and feel that um, when we hear it in the text. That, in particular, for us, the church is not for people like us, right? The average Christian is not a white person. It's not an American. Um, it's, you know, it's, yeah, we all know that, but it can subtly creep in, I think, in how we think about the church. And so we just need to be reminded of that reality, that in John's vision, the church includes all kinds of people. And in our world, that's true, too, right? I mean, we've talked about this before, but if you, if you put all the Christians in a room, which there'd be a lot of them, but if you put all the Christians in the world in a room and found, like, the average based on numbers, right, they're from Africa or Latin America, it's a woman, and she speaks English as her second language, and probably Spanish as her first. Like, if you do the averages on all the Christians in the world, that's the sort of average Christian. So we need to remember that. That said, in relation to the question of who can stand, um, the important thing that we need to recognize in this verse is this. It's what these saints are doing. They're dressed in white, they have palm branches, but you'll notice it says that they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And that is an exact echo of the end of verse 6, where they say, who can stand before the throne and before the wrath of the Lamb? Now we have this vision of these people who are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So how then can they stand? Well, keep reading verse 10. They cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the now, when we talk about the language of salvation in Scripture, that term can actually refer to a lot of stuff. We can be saved from things like the power of sin and Satan. We can be saved from things like our circumstances. But here, what are we being saved from? Well, the answer is that we are being saved from the judgment of God we read about in chapter 6. In Revelation 6, all these terrible things spill out on the earth, and ultimately final judgment comes as a result of our sin— and what we're saved from, what we get salvation from here in chapter 7, is that judgment that God is bringing. So in the face of the Lamb's judgment, who can stand? Answer, only those saved by the Lamb. John makes that explicit in verse 14. As we skip down, he, these people are described by an elder around the throne as the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And he says that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, we've seen that language of white robes before, right? It's a picture of faith, and it's a picture of triumph and victory. But the key thing to recognize here is that the robe is white, not because these saints were faithful, right? It's not white because of their faith or their perseverance. It's white because of the blood of the Lamb that washed them. We gain those robes through trust. In our world, there is this argument that you will hear sometimes between two groups of people about how Christianity should work. And they are arguing about whether Christianity should be exclusive or inclusive, right? Should it be exclusive or should it be inclusive? And the answer to that is yes. Um, it depends on what you're asking. And it depends particularly on whether you're asking who is welcomed in in Christianity or who the source of our salvation is. Christianity is deeply inclusive in terms of who is welcomed in. It does not matter 
who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how messed up your life is or what dark secrets you're hiding. It doesn't matter where you live or what language you speak or what religion you were brought up in or what color your skin is. It doesn't matter who your family was. It doesn't matter who you've betrayed or used or slept with or murdered. None of that matters, right? In Christianity, you are welcome if you are a human being and a sinner. Those are the only grounds, you know, of, of, of who can come. And, um, and so it is deeply inclusive in terms of who is welcome, right? If that's you, salvation is for you. But while Christianity is deeply inclusive in terms of who we should welcome in, it is deeply exclusive in terms of how we are saved. Which is to say, no matter who we are, we are saved only by the Lord. We're saved by Jesus. We're saved by owning and grieving that sin and coming to him and finding forgiveness his righteousness given to us and receiving white robes from him and beginning to live and trust and follow him. Whoever you are and whoever you are, you are welcome to come to Jesus, but it is Jesus alone through whom you can find salvation. Concretely then, that means two things when we think about how we apply that to our lives. One, it means that we should always welcome people as they are, regardless of who they are. We should always welcome people as they are, regardless of who they are. In Christianity, it is okay to not be okay. In fact, it's, it's mandatory to be a sinner, right? To come to Jesus. And too often, Christians end up putting boundaries around who can come, who is welcome to come and talk about Jesus and explore him and wrestle with him. You've got to sort stuff out in your life before you can come and start to wrestle with Jesus. You've got to dress or act a certain way. You've got to think a certain way. We, may, we maybe don't come out and say it, but in our actions, we definitely act it. I remember, I mean, one of those moments growing up in the church that haunts me. I remember as a teenager, um, and this stood out to me because you got a teenage Eric was like this, this punk, like, chopped at Hot Topic and had spikes and made his own jewelry and stuff. Like, weird kid, right? But, um, but I remember sitting in church and noticing one Sunday that there were two visitors um, in church, and one of them was like a you know, guy in a jacket that looked kind of nice, and the other guy was this guy who looked like he'd be one of my friends, right? Who's like wearing a Metallica t-shirt and dark circles under his eyes from being out all night. And I remember clearly just watching after church, like 16-year-old me, and seeing all the people go and greet the guy in the jacket, and nobody go <laughs> greet the guy in the Metallica t-shirt, right? And that still haunts me because in their actions, those people were believing something that is untrue about Christianity, which is that there are some people, right, who are more welcome to come, more fit to come than other people. So we should always be welcoming of people as they are. At the same time, we also have to insist that Jesus alone is the source of salvation. All of us are called to die to ourselves and trust in him, take up our crosses and follow him, center our hope name of being inclusive, what some Christians today end up doing is trying to remove the necessity of Jesus, right? To say not only it doesn't matter who you are, but also it doesn't matter who you come to. It doesn't matter where you look for hope and life and salvation. Um, it's all cool. Now again, because of the inclusivity of the call, just because someone doesn't trust in Jesus does not mean we shouldn't be loving towards them. We should, right? We should love and show grace towards all kinds of people. But we do also have to tell people the truth, biblically. We have to say there is only one way we can stand. We 
before the justice of God. And it is not our righteousness. It is not our ability to dress ourselves up. It's not anything in us. But the only way we can stand is Jesus Christ and his work for us. It's only by the blood of the Lamb that our robes can be washed clean. And if in the name of love we don't acknowledge that fact, saved by the Lamb. Then the second thing we learn is that we're also sealed by the Lamb. We're sealed by the Lamb of God. So if you now jump back to verse 1, and we're going to start at the beginning of the chapter. John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea into the new place. Alright, this is the beginning of the vision. We're like, okay, what does that mean? Um, if you remember last week in chapter 6, we saw these four horsemen that are the beginnings of God's judgment, right? That in popular imagination became the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, the Old Testament background for those four horsemen is Zechariah 6. And there Zechariah describes these horsemen, but he also describes them as the four winds coming from the corners of the earth. So what John seems to be doing is he has this vision of God's judgment, and now he's sort of rewinding. And he's saying, but wait, what you need to know is before these horsemen were unleashed, before God's judgment starts to fall on the earth, something else happened. All right, here's what happened first. And then what is that? Chapter 3, um, an angel declares to these horsemen, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So we're told of these 144,000 then that are sealed, 12,000 from each of the now, there are certain fringe groups, maybe you've met people who make a lot of this 144,000 number, and this idea of that many people being sealed. And, um, and look, th some of them even think that that means there's like 144,000 people that can be saved, and that's nonsense. A, because, I mean, a thousand just means a lot in the Bible, right? When it says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that doesn't mean, but it's like, but in the 1,001st hill, right? It's not God's anymore. And so, you know, 12,000 times 12, this is just a way of saying this great thing. And we know that because there's two pictures, we're told, of all the people that are saved in this chapter. First, there's this 144,000, and then there's this countless multitude that nobody could number. And if we're told that this group of people is both 144,000 and a number that nobody can count, we should not assume that that uncountable number is therefore exactly 144,000, okay? That's just, it doesn't, that's not the point of it. But the point isn't, is rather that you see these people and that they are sealed. That's actually the emphasis of the text, right? That the horsemen are told to wait to bring God's judgment on the earth until God can seal his people. That image comes from Ezekiel 9. God is preparing there to bring judgment against Israel. But first he says this. He says, pass through the city. He's speaking to this prophet thing, angel thing, through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So God says, go put this mark, this seal, on the people in, Jer in Jerusalem that are still faithful to me. That's what he's talking about, that haven't turned aside to idols. And it's probably a mark of ownership, right? In the ancient world, a king or a noble would attach a seal to something that he owned to show that it was his. And the picture is God is putting this mark on his people to say, I own you. And then in Ezekiel, when judgment falls... These people are kept from being destroyed by it. That's what he goes on to say in Ezekiel 9. So the point is that in Revelation 6, we hear about this judgment and tribulation that is coming on the earth. 
But in Revelation 7, what is made clear is that those who are sealed by the Lamb will be preserved through the judgment. In what sense are they preserved? Well, it isn't that the destruction that comes won't affect them. In fact, one of the images that were given of them is of those who are martyred. And if being killed by your faith is clearly the sort of suffering that, you know, is a part of this suffering coming on the earth. Um, but what the seal represents is God's ultimate commitment to preserve and save his people through anything that life brings. It's God's ultimate commitment to you as one of his people to preserve and save you no matter what comes. One of the ideas the Bible teaches is that God will preserve those who trust in him. Those who are saved will be sealed and carried by God until the end. It's pretty clear in the Bible. Take this from the Apostle Paul. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or this from Jude, as he talks about God, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Or Jesus himself says it. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So over and over, Scripture says that God will preserve those that he has saved. Now that does not mean that anyone who's ever outwardly said, oh yeah, Jesus is cool, right, is, you know, is, is, is given this promise. There's a difference between just sort of saying that and that being deeply true in our hearts, right? The fact that, like, once at camp 20 years ago, you went forward is not the same thing as this. And in fact, the Bible talks about that too. John, in 1 John, he says, he's describing these people that abandoned the faith, and he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So God preserves us if we're saved, but God's preserving us is the same thing as us persevering in faith and trust in God, right? So it's not that, you know, those people who just leave and bail are still somehow recipients of that. And really, as starting to talk about that, that highlights, I feel like, the biggest issue with this idea when we say that God will preserve and seals you for salvation, which is we treat it like a philosophical issue when it's supposed to be a practical issue. What I mean is this. I, um, I tell my kids regularly, you know, like, I will always love you no matter what you do, like, I will always love you no matter what happens. And because my kids are my kids, uh, <laughs> um, one of them once responded when I said this by saying, okay, what if I murder my brother and sister and eat them and become a cannibal? <laughs> um, <laughs> and and here's, the, here's the thing, like, that tells you a lot about <laughs> me, I know, right? But but, um, but here's the thing about that. That is not the point of that statement, right? You're reaching the wrong conclusion if I say, you know, I will always love you no matter what you should do. Like, you're not supposed to reach the conclusion from that, oh, well, I should become a cannibal, right? And likewise, when God says, like, I will always love you and have sealed and will carry you through no, ma no matter what comes, it's not—don't be like my kids in that regard and say to that, like, oh, well, you know, in that case, like, how about if I just go do all this stuff that you don't want, right? Go do all the terrible stuff. That's not the point. The point of this declaration is that no matter what comes, no matter what life throws our way, God has sealed and will preserve us, and he will fight for us and chase us when we wander, 
you strengthen us when we keep us. And that is a, keep that is, that is a truth that is meant to encourage our hearts. It means that no matter who would threaten us or betray us, that God has sealed us and will hold us fast. It means that no matter what the diagnosis is, that God has sealed us and will hold us fast. It means that no matter what tomorrow brings, no matter how weak my flesh is, no matter how messed up my heart is, no matter how much the world falls apart, or how much money is in the bank, or how the next election goes, or how well or poorly my life is going, or what people say, or what people do, or the laws that the government makes, or the schemes that Satan makes, or the way anything in any of creation goes, no matter any of that, that God has sealed us, and will carry and preserve us, and hold us fast. Jesus' salvation tells us how we stand cosmically in the Sealing tells us how we stand practically in the face of a world that is still broken by sin. We stand on Jesus, trusting in him that he will carry and preserve us through all of the challenges and all of the hardships that life brings and all of the crookedness and struggle that still exists in our hearts. So in the Lamb we have salvation, and in the Lamb we are sealed. And then one last thing. This promise, or in this passage, we're also promised that we will be healed by the Lamb. We will be healed by the Lamb. So jump to the end of this vision, where the elder is explaining who these saints are. He says they've washed their robes in the Lamb's blood, and he says then, Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So notice, that's a picture of their relationship with God being healed. That relationship that they broke when we rebelled in sin against God, that's healed. And in fact, we're working and serving him in his temple in that kind of vocation and calling that we had in God's original good creation. Keep reading, verse 16. It says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. So not only is that relationship with God healed, but the relationship with each other in the world is being healed, right? All those ways that the world is broken because of sin are healed for them. And then verse 7, he says, The Lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's a reference to Psalm 23, which is one of the most familiar psalms that um, for many Christians... And ultimately, what all of this is echoing is this. There's like a dozen Old Testament references, you know, woven through those verses. And they're all images that together come to picture God's new creation and the world restored when Jesus returns. Um, In fact, a lot of that language will be exactly echoed in Revelation 21, which is where we get a kind of full picture of that new heavens and the new earth. And that's what John is glimpsing here in the middle of these visions of judgment, that even in the midst of judgment, he's being reminded that at the end, there is this beautiful, healed world where we live in beautiful, healed communion with God and one another. Here's why that matters. Let me tell you two stories, right? One is what I think people picture the story of Christianity as being. People outside the church, maybe sadly sometimes people in the church, And then the other one is the actual story of Christianity. Here is the first story. It says, well, God made everything, and then he made two places you're going to go when you die. 
There's a good place and there's a bad place, right? And in the good place, you get to like eat ice cream and float on clouds and, you know, it's, it's heaven and it's like an all-inclusive resort with harps and stuff. And the bad place, you get tortured by devils forever. And what God decided to do is he says, well, we're going to give you all a test. And in that test, there's one question, and it's, do you trust in Jesus? And if you get the right answer, you go to the good place. And if you get the wrong answer, you go to the bad place forever, because it's a past eternal torment one quiz or something. And, um, and that's the story of Christianity. Now, I am intentionally making that story sound silly, right? And people will maybe tell it a little bit less obviously silly than that. But there's a lot of issues with that story. It's a terrible story, but one of the core issues is that in that story— it doesn't make sense, right? The judgment part especially makes no sense. How on earth, right, does it make sense that God would design the world to work that way? So let's try the Bible story instead. We've told the first part of it, remember? God is perfectly good, makes a very good world out of that goodness, puts us to, to care for and glorify him in that very good world and enjoy it. We rebel, everything's a mess. Everything is wrecked and broken in sin. Then... Here is what happens next. God, like we said, loves his goodness, and he loves this very good world, and he's going to bring healing to the world. He's going to restore it from its brokenness. But before he comes in judgment on us, he starts by coming in Jesus to work our salvation. He suffers the penalty we should suffer for our rebellion. He defeats the dark spiritual forces and our sin that lie behind that rebellion. He starts a new humanity so that we're not identified by, like, Adam, that first rebel who leads us in rebellion, but instead by Jesus, this new human being that can, um, that can give us a new identity. And he calls us to experience salvation in Jesus. Millions of people do, right? Like, he, he gathers in this harvest from humanity, and he begins in this life to restore them, and he forgives them their sins. And then ultimately, um, in that new creation— they find not just the world healed and very good again, but themselves healed and back in that place that God created them for, caring for and watching over. That said, for those that are not so transformed, like we said, God loves his goodness and this very good world too much to abandon it, and he cannot allow those who are destroying it to continue if they don't turn from their destruction. And so he does come in judgment. Is the final defeat and imprisonment of those who are in rebellion against God. That is the story of the Bible. Now look, even in that story, I'm not pretending like the judgment part makes me happy. Right? I'm not pretending like, oh yeah, I feel yay about that. But it does mean two things that really are helpful to me as I try to understand what God is doing. One is that even his judgment is a result of his commitment to healing it is not the case that God is just sort of being arbitrary about some arbitrary rules. It is that God cares about the world and is working to do good to the world, and judgment is a necessary part of that, right? Like, if my kids—if I love my kids, and they're, like, playing in a room, and there's a poisonous snake in the room with them, right? Like, out of love for my kids, I have to remove the snake, right? I have to, I have to get it out of there, and that is exactly how God's judgment works with those in rebellion against him. God cannot pretend to love the world without removing the things that are destroying it. And then two, the other thing to notice is that what we are being offered in that story in Jesus is not ice cream and clouds, right? Not some all-inclusive, like, resort vacation, but it is restoration 
to what we were always created to be. God is coming to restore creation, and he is restoring us as a part of that. And that is very important, because in that first story, when we say, what does it mean to be a Christian, all you can really say is, well, it means you don't go to hell. (laughs) You know, like, I guess I just don't get judged. But in this story, it's saying that you actually get your, your humanity Right? Your identity and the, the flourishing wholeness of human life that you're meant to have in the world, that that's what Jesus is beginning to restore for you and inviting you to experience. That's what we were created for, what we lost in our rebellion, and what the Lamb is ultimately restoring. With all of that said, let me sum up for us what we take from that as we close with the simple question, where are we failing, therefore, to hope lamb to help us stand. The answer from first to last there is how do we stand before the judgment of God? It's to the lamb. So the question we have to ask is how are we failing to hope in the lamb? For some of us, we might be failing to trust in the lamb's salvation. Right? That, that, that first reality might not be true for us yet. And if, if that is you, if you are still trying to, to fix yourself and clean yourself up and be strong enough to just like handle it all on your own, then friend, just stop. <laughs> You don't have to stand by your strength. Instead, come to Jesus and see your robes washed white in his blood and be welcomed in no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. For others of us, maybe we've experienced that. We are struggling to believe that we are sealed in the land. We so feel the, the brokenness of the world, but we so feel the brokenness of our own bodies and minds that we, we just struggle to believe that there's any hope for us. And if that is you, then in a sense you're right. (laughs) In yourself there isn't hope. But the Lamb has sealed you and will work to bring that good work that he began in you to completion. He will hold you fast. He will not forsake his love for you. And you can find encouragement in that promise. For others of us still, we struggle to believe that we are actually healed maybe understand that we're out from underneath God's judgment, and that's the cool thing, but we don't appreciate the depth of what Jesus has done for us. That we are being remade as a new humanity. That we are being invited into new life and restored to a new way of being in the world. And if that is you, then take hope. Open your heart, open your imagination to begin to realize what Jesus is inviting you into. You are not, in this thing, just given a way to escape hell, right? You are being given a way to be restored to what humanity was meant to be. You are God's child who has welcomed you and is giving you a place of dignity in his kingdom. Friends, I don't know where you are at in relation to those realities, but that is the only truth on which we can stand. Our salvation belongs to the Lamb. And he has sealed us, and he will hold us until he finally So may we find our shelter in him. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that in Jesus Christ we are given welcome. We are given new hope and identity. Pray that you would make this our trust, that each of us would make this the thing that we are trusting and hoping in, and that it would so carry us until the day when he returns. Pray this in his great name.